Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to be able to share your word with your people, which is an awesome responsibility. I pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to work in my heart and to work in the heart of your people that we may hear from you through your word. We ask that you bless our time together we thank you for the blessing of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We all want to be happy, don't we? We see people everywhere vigorously on the pursuit of happiness. We think we'll be happy if we're rich. All the money in the world, no more worries. Maybe we're looking for a big career move. Climbing that corporate ladder, that will make us happy. What about owning our own company? That surely will make us happy. For some of us, it's health and wellness. If I eat and live healthy, that will make me happy. So often, we are seeking happiness in things that don't bring any lasting happiness at all. We may be addicted to social media, and finding happiness is in how many friends we have online. Look at me, I'm popular. This will make me happy. Maybe it's how many likes we get on our posts. That will make me happy. Others are looking to political activism and social justice. That will make me happy. We even have large segments of the visible church that embrace a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Here we make God like a genie in a bottle, creating our own golden calf to make us happy with all our earthly desires. God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. This God will make me happy with stuff. This is a very popular idea, a television, a televangelist and pastor, the largest church in the United States has made $50 million selling this idea and has 52,000 people attending his church weekly to buy into it. Maybe for some of us we find happiness in our family or the success of our children or for others we find happiness in being seen as deep, having deep theological knowledge. This is just some of the samplings of the things that will not bring us happiness. And if we're looking for happiness in them alone, we'll be sorely disappointed. We will never be rich enough. We will never, uh, our career will never be good enough. And we'll never be healthy and fit enough. And comparing ourselves to others on social media or even in the church will leave us feeling empty and lonely. This morning, we're going to spend our time in Psalm 1 which will introduce us to the way in which we may find true happiness and fulfillment in life. Here we see a beautiful analogy of the new birth, of regeneration. We'll see that the one that is on the path of the righteous started in a much different place, a dry and barren land. But by the sovereign grace of God, 
he, has been, he or she has been transplanted by streams of water. This is a glorious analogy of the experience of every true Christian. We will see that the key point of Psalm 1 is that the true child of God finds happiness and fulfillment in life by both meditation and delight in the law of God. We will see that this psalm warns us of the sure and eventual and eternal ruin of those that dismiss and reject God. Psalm 1 was not the first psalm written in the book of Psalms, as it was written 400 years prior to Psalm 90 and 600 years prior to Psalm 126. The book of Psalms was compiled over the course of approximately 1,000 years and organized into five books similar to the Torah, as is compiled into the five books of Moses. Now Psalm 1 and 2 are standalone psalms, but they are considered a literary unit. You will notice when you look at the first verse of Psalm 1 and compare it to the last verse of Psalm 2, that they echo each other. And this is what scholars call an inclusio. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 serve as an entrance point into the Psalter, like dual doors entering into the house of worship. We will see set before us that there are only two ways of life, two paths, two roads. There is the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. We will see on one hand the blessedness of the righteous and on the other hand the misery and future of the wicked. It lays before us this morning two ways of life. There are only two kinds of people and only two classifications of those people. The world sees things much differently and classifies people in many categories as we see so often. We see people divided by skin color, ethnicity, gender, age, education, political affiliations, and so forth. But God only sees two kinds of people and two very different paths. Those that are blessed by him and those that are cursed by him. God sees people as either righteous or wicked. He sees you as either righteous or wicked this morning. Here set before us all is the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. There is no third way. There is no fourth way. Only these two. The declaration that is sounding forth from this psalm is calling all to examine themselves before entering the house of worship. Which way of life are you on? Are you on the way of the wicked or the way of the righteous? In the book of Revelations, chapter 7, verse 9, we see that God calls people from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language to himself. The first psalm stands as a kind of introduction to the rest of the psalms. Its subject matter touches on two subjects that continually occur throughout the psalms. It declares the blessedness of the righteous and the misery and future of the wicked. It presents two ways of life, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And the key subject is the centrality of God's word to the life and fruitfulness of the righteous who truly love God and his word. Psalm 1 is also a Torah psalm, otherwise known as a wisdom psalm. Although the term Torah is often translated law, its meaning is much broader than we may consider when we think of the law of God. As we know, the five books of Moses are called the Torah.
and they reveal to us not only God's law, but also his work in creation and redemption. Thus, Torah is not only God's teaching, but also his instruction. Someone also reaches back to the Torah where we see the two ways, one leading to life and one leading to death. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 to 20, we will recall Moses' declaration to the people of Israel, setting before them life and death, blessing and cursing. It reads, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him. For that means life to you and length of days. Now Psalm 1 is also a beatitude. Just like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. When you compare Psalm 1 with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one could easily think that Jesus had this psalm in mind. Psalm 1 begins with, Blessed are those. Jesus used the very same word from the Greek translation in Psalm 1 in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Nine times Jesus uses the word blessed. The word blessed means supremely happy or fulfilled. In the Hebrew, the word is actually a plural, which denotes uh, either a multiplicity of blessings or an intensification of blessings. It means something like fortunate are those or better or privileged are those. It donates a, denotes a genuine state of happiness, a, a supreme joy regardless of circumstances. You may have this psalm committed to memory this morning. It's a beautiful psalm describing those who belong to Christ. I trust this psalm describes you this morning. And I'm hoping you'll be encouraged as we look at this psalm together. So let's uh, look at Psalm, starting with the first three verses. First, we're going to look at the uh, way of the righteous in verse 1 to 3. And then secondly, the way of the wicked in verse 4 and 5. And then lastly, we're going to compare the two ways in verse 6. So look with me at uh, verse 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We notice here that the psalm starts with the word blessed. How often do you hear the word blessed being used? How is it being used? I hear it often being used to describe health or wealth or financial related benefits, or blessings where they're attributed to God's favor in one's life. Now I'm not saying that it's not correct to say these things are a blessing from God. But they certainly are not indicators that we have favor with God. Otherwise, the poor missionary that sacrificed the world's goods to serve God under very difficult circumstances would be out of favor, out of God's favor, while our $50 million celebrity TV pastor mentioned earlier is. This type of understanding of blessing is superficial and is not what this psalm is referring to when it describes the blessed person. Here are a few scriptural examples of how being blessed is more about being right with God. According to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 and 4, if you have been chosen by God before the foundations of the world, you are blessed. 
according to Galatians 3 9 if you believe that if you believe and have received Christ's righteousness by faith you're blessed we also read in Psalm 32 1 to 2 blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered also in Psalm 94 12 we see this description of the blessed person blessed is the man whom you discipline O Lord whom you teach out of your law and in the book of Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 the blessed person is described as the one who hears and keeps God's commandments unfortunately this is not what many have in mind when they use the word blessed in our affluent culture but for us this morning this is what brings us the greatest joy and happiness it's our relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ the text here in the first verse uses three verbs to describe the what blessed people do not do notice the verbs walk stand and sit these verbs clearly describe what blessed people do not do we also see that they do what they do not move towards as these verbs show a progression and a movement towards ungodliness the blessed man or woman does not walk in the counsel of the wicked they do not stand in the way of sinners and they do not sit in the seat of scoffers please look at verse 1 with me and notice the three sets we have starting with so set 1 we see walk stand and sit set 2 we see counsel way and seat and set 3 wicked sinners and scoffers set one walk stand and sit we're seeing a progressing from a casual acquaintance with sin to a settled one in set two counsel way and seat we're now seeing the progression from listening to and entertaining the ideas of the wicked to having a seat at the table and advancing those ideas and in set three wicked sinners and scoffers here we see the use of cinnamons to describe people that reject the authority of God's Word and follow their own path apart from God we must at this point consider a note of caution for all of us as the nature and pervasiveness of sin cannot be underestimated as it always goes from bad to worse always progressing from a casual acquaintance to a settled one are there any casual acquaintances that you're having with sin John Owen in his famous quote based on Romans chapter 8 verses 13 reminds us all to be killing sin or sin will be killing us if you haven't read Jesus Sermon on the Mount recently I rec recommend you do the Sermon on the Mount certainly echoes Psalm 1 in many ways including the concept of blessing that dominates both Psalm 1 and the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 verses 3 to 12 when considering our battle with sin and avoiding its progression Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount clearly warns us where sin must be dealt with in the heart before we act on it consider Matthew chapter 5 27 verses 8 for example where he addresses the is this issue with husbands you have heard that that it was said you shall not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart or elsewhere James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 
we read, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. To quote Charles Spurgeon, when men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly who forget God. The evil is rather practical than habitual. But after that, they become habituated to evil. And they stand in the way of open sinners who willfully violate God's commandments. And if let alone, they go one step further. They become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others. And thus they sit in the seat of the scornful. They have taken their degree in vice, and as true doctors of damnation, they are installed. In our North American culture, the counsel of the wicked is mass-produced and broadcasted on huge technological platforms. Its reach is unprecedented with the help of technology. Consider for a moment all the godless untruthfulness that is pumping out of the mainstream media 24-7 through television, magazines, the internet, as well as Hollywood movies and social media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, and others. What about you? How much time do you spend listening to what the world is preaching on these platforms versus what God is teaching you in his word? We must not be deceived. All these vehicles of mass media are preaching something. And we need discernment from God's word to protect our minds and our hearts from the poison that the world is spewing out like an open sewer. Bible scholar Clinton McMahon writes prospectively, what is so unsettling about all of this is what Psalm 1 and the rest of the Psalter call wickedness is perhaps what North America culture promotes as the highest virtue, autonomy, end quote. We see this, don't we, in the culture where everyone wants to be a law unto oneself, self-made, sovereign, subject to no one, and certainly not subject to God. This self-directed autonomy has progressed in our society to such an extreme that recently a United States senator, or governor, sorry, promoted promoting pro-choice for mothers to kill their unborn, unwanted babies is now advanced to what would be unimaginable only a few years ago. They are now debating how to let the baby die if he or she was born alive. I quote the governor, the infant would be delivered the infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. This is outrageous to us. But to the wicked, this is moral and right. What we see here is an example of the nature of sin, always going from bad to worse as this psalm warns. When we consider all this, it does not only describe the lifestyle of the wicked, it also shows the fruit of that lifestyle. So far, we have seen what the blessed person does not do as contrasted with what the wicked do in the form of three negatives. They do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. They do not sit or stand in the way of sinners, and they do not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now we're going to look at two positives in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
When we consider the word law in the Bible, the Torah, this does not mean the law restricts us. Rather, it means the law instructs us. It is the instruction from the Lord, it is the Lord's teaching. The Lord who created us provides us with a manual of teaching in how we are to live to our fullest potential. The Torah really shows us the direction our life ought to take to be supremely happy and fulfilled. This morning, if you are what the psalm describes as a blessed person, this is you. You love God's word. And when you think about God's word, you get excited. You read it daily. You think about it morning, afternoon, and evening. You talk about it at the fellowship tables or weekly Bible studies with your family, with your friends. It's always top of mind. It's food for your soul. You can't live without it because it provides direction for your life. The Word of God is our guide and instructor, not popular psychology, not self-help, or anything else. It is the Word of God. It is your source for truth and instruction. When we think about the law of God or the instruction that comes from the Word of God, let us review what John Calvin wrote that has been known as the threefold use of the law. In order to show the importance of the law of God for the Christian life, the first purpose of the law is to be a mirror. On the one hand, the law of God reflects or mirrors the perfect righteousness of God. We see the law telling us much about who God is. Perhaps more importantly, the law illuminates human sinfulness. In the first purpose, we see the law highlights our weakness and it acts as a severe schoolmaster who drives us to Christ. The second purpose of the law is for the law is a restraint of evil. We know that the law cannot change human hearts, as that can only come by grace and a supernatural act of God. The law, however, can serve to protect the righteous from the unjust. The third purpose of the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. For the blessed person, as described in this psalm, the law enlightens us to know what is pleasing to our God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. This is the highest function of the law, to serve as an instru instrument for the people of God, to give him glory and honor. Consider then the Torah as God graciously extending his hand to steady our feet, the steady of the feet of his children like children learning to walk. Thus we delight in the law of God. Look at Psalm 19, verse 8 to 10, if you'd like to, please. The precepts of the law, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Psalm 119, 103, 105 echoes this as well. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp and a light to my path. Now Jonathan Edwards said, God created man for nothing else but true happiness, but happiness. It is not the central pleasures of life that he speaks about, but the spiritual delight of having one's life rooted in God. In our secular world, many will not understand the delights of God's word, but it is accompanied by the assurance of God's watchful care that is underwritten in God's love. And who would not want to be surrounded but with love? This is why the blessed person meditates on God's law day and night. What does it mean to meditate on God's word? The word translated as meditate is literally to recite aloud or to murmur. In those days, people did not read silently as we so often do. They read it out loud. So to meditate on God's law means to read God's word, to reflect on God's word, and to put to practice what we have learned. When you are meditating on God's word, you should ask questions such as, what is God saying here about himself, and what has he done for me? What is God saying about me, and what does he require of me? Am I living in accordance with God's teaching? Am I living for myself or for God? Do you do this? Is it possible that the times we're just reading to gain biblical knowledge only? John Scott Stott contrasts the blessed from the wicked with this. The truly happy person looks for guidance for their daily conduct, not the public opinion, the unreliable fashions of the godless world, but to the revealed word of God in which they delight and meditate. Now verse 2 also says, on his law he meditates day and night. Now this speaks of continually meditating on God's word. Let's consider other places in scripture for clarity on the meaning of day and night and continually. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 to 7 where the Lord instructs Israel by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You see, this isn't just some quiet time set aside to read God's word. This is all the time. Is God's word on your mind all the time? Consider the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now moving to verse 3, it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does he prospers. As we've seen so far, the, a blessed person does not live or walk, a, a walk as the world does. 
Instead, they're walking in a completely different direction, enjoying completely different things. They're walking with God, delighting in God, delighting in His law and His word. His word is constantly on their minds and thoughts. In verse 3, we see this type of life, the blessed life, described as a, in a simile, as a tree that has been transplanted by streams of water. Unlike trees growing wild in the valley or dry ravines, uh, or planted in the fields where the amount of rainfall varies, the tree that the psalmist envisions has been planted purposely by irrigation canals. Paul in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 describes the Christian has been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. A blessed person is not a person who's turned over a new leaf or working on a better version of themselves. It's a person that God has transplanted in his orchard by streams of water. They are now described as healthy, fruitful trees, not wild trees, but trees that have been intentionally planted and cared for, as you would expect in a well-managed orchard, with irrigation channels designed to nurture their root system. Like all mature, healthy fruit trees, they produce fruit in its season. Yes, the blessed person may suffer and experience hard times when they cannot bear fruit. This is normal. We aren't expected to bear fruit all the time but we will bear fruit in its season. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 to 2, it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. In verse 5 of the same passage, it says, I am the vine, this is Jesus, you are the branches, Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It is clear the blessed person is united with Christ. They can't produce fruit of their own just as much as they can't save themselves. It is a gift from God. We bear fruit only by the grace of God, just as we're only saved by the grace of God, and not by anything we have done. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. We read part of this in the call to worship. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, uh, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The blessed person's leaf does not wither because he is planted by streams of water. That means that even in the dry seasons of life, even in times of suffering, the blessed person does not only keep their faith, but they grow in their faith. As we see so often in times of trials, hardship, and suffering. Paul brings us up in Romans 8:37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loves us. In all that he does, he prospers. Some may be thinking this sounds like a lot like the health, wealth, and gospel, uh, prosperity gospel. Well, rest assured, that superficial interpretation would be incorrect. God does not promise health, wealth, and prosperity. Consider for a moment some of the most wicked people in this world have all the world's goods, while the most faithful Christians 
being persecuted and oppressed or living in complete poverty. We see, the, we see wicked people living in, into old age with great health while faithful Christians can suffer from horrendous diseases. The psalm very often addresses the issue of the prosperity of the wicked and we see this in Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not as troubled as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. The blessed, per the blessed trust in their relationship with God, not their circumstances, while the thick wicked think they are blessed because of their circumstances. Quite often all their wealth, health and prosperity is nothing more than a curse blinding them to their need for God. What about you this morning? Are you trusting in your relationship with God or your circumstances? Having looked at the way of the righteous, we will now look at the way of the wicked. After spending considerable time describing the blessed person, Psalm 1 dismisses the wicked in two short verses, verse 4 and 5. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked are not so can also be translated as not so the wicked. Therefore, not like a transplanted fruit-bearing tree by streams of water, always green and always prospering, not so the wicked. The wicked, or ungodly, walk in the counsel of the wicked. They stand with sinners, they sit in the seat of scoffers, and they do not delight in the law of the Lord, and they do not meditate in his law day and night. Turn with me to Psalm 49, verses 10 to 12, where the wicked are described this way. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they call lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. We see this so often, don't we? The wicked exalt themselves and exclude God. Therefore they're described like chaff that the wind drives away. This is another agricultural image, but antithetical to that of a fruit, uh, fruitful tree. The wicked are like worthless chaff. At harvest time, the farmers would gather the sheaves of grain and lay them on the threshing floor, crush them with a, a threshing sledge, and then with a widowing fork, toss the grain into the air. The heavier grain would fall back on the threshing floor, but the dry chaff would be blown away by the wind. Note the contrast between the fruitful tree and the worthless chaff. Stable versus wind-blown. Well-watered versus dry and dust. Fruit-bearing, worthless, alive versus dead. We see the wicked compared to chaff because they're unstable and worthless. The wicked are not grounded in God's teaching as they either reject it or dismiss it. They do not bear fruit, therefore they are spiritually dead. The life of the wicked in essence is a life that dismisses or rejects God, seeing no need for him in their lives. 
Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and consider where you came from if you are a Christian this morning and where you are now if you're not. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, once walking according to the course of this world, following the power, prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Yes, we were once dead and worthless, like chaff, blown in the wind prior to receiving God's mercy and grace and salvation. We didn't desire God. We desired serving ourselves in our needs. This is our state prior to Christ. So far, we see a clear message in this psalm. There are only two ways. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. In contrast to the wicked who perish, the Lord watches over the righteous who delight in the teachings of the Lord. Which way will you choose? Will you walk with the wicked or stand with those who are right with God? If you're wise, you would choose to order your life according to God's teaching. That is the way to life. Now God's word is clear. There is coming a day where we will all stand before God and give an account for our life. The righteous will stand because they don't stand on their own righteousness. They stand on the righteousness of another. The righteousness of Christ is provide freely when we put our faith in him. The wicked, those that reject the grace of God, will not withstand the judgment. As we have seen in this metaphor, for chaff reveals the, use, uh, the uselessness of the wicked as well as the ease to which God will deal with the wicked. Even as the winnower casts the chaff to the afternoon breeze, so the Lord will drive away the wicked. No one will remember their place. Jesus describes what he will do in the judgment in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 3, verses 12. And I quote, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Malachi warns of this day in chapter 4, verses 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 to 43, Jesus warns, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. If that, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God said, There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. He also said unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotting covering. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. If you have not yet turned from sin and self to Christ, the mercy of God is extended to you this morning. 
So far we've looked at the way of the righteous in verses 1 to 3 and the way of the wicked in verses 4 to 5. Now we're going to look at the two ways in the last verse of this psalm. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked compared in verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Verse 6 starts with the Lord knows. The reason for his, this certainty lies in God's sovereignty. God, a sovereign knowledge of the affairs of men. God knows. He knows everything, including all our intentions, our thoughts, and there is nothing that is hidden from him. We can also be assured that God cares for his own. His, he protects his own. He rewards his own. Here we see the intimate acquaintance that God has for his people expressed in his love and care for them in the verb know. In other translation, watches over. The verb also used is used for the intimate relationship between a husband and wife. And we see that in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1. If we were to do a survey of redemptive history this morning, we would see that God has always cared and loved his people. We see the consistent theme of God's sovereign concern and care for his people throughout all of Scripture. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He always is mindful of them. And consider Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verses 30. But even the hairs of, their, of your head are all numbered. And in Job 23.10, But he knows the way that I take when he has tried me. I shall come out as gold. We have seen that the way of the righteous is characterized by a love for God, a love for his law, and a love for his word, a delight, a, the righteous delight in God and his word. Do you delight in God's word? Do you get up every morning excited to hear from God through his word afresh daily? In Psalm is Psalm 119, 105 true for you? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If all this is true for you, it's because you are blessed. But as the psalm concludes, there is a second way, the way of the wicked. As the last verse of this psalm declares, but the way of the wicked will perish. We see it also in Proverbs 14.12, where the way of the wicked is ascribed this way. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Here we see both they and their way shall perish. This is sobering if you're not walking with God. This should cause great concern if you're walking in rebellion against God. You may think you're not hostile towards God, but living your life doing your thing without Christ being center in your life is as hostility towards God. Your heart is at war with God when you dismiss and reject him. And in Romans 5.10, you're labeled an enemy of God. The Lord offers no protection to those who are not reconciled to him. Rather, their end is destruction. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he clearly warns, those who know him must do the will of God as interpreted by him. And those who do not produce fruit will come under the judgment of his words. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The righteous and the wicked are heading in opposite directions. 
And in this psalm, and this psalm could not be clearer. The righteous are heading towards their eternal reward in heaven, while the wicked are heading towards their eternal doom in hell. In conclusion, this psalm is displayed before us the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. It is compared the way of the righteous to the way of the wicked. We have seen that the true child of God finds happiness and fulfillment in both meditation and delight in the law of God. We have also heard the warning of the sure and eventual and eternal ruin of those who dismiss and reject God. There could not be any more stark contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, as we have seen. There are no other ways. Jesus himself, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that is considered one of the greatest sermons ever preached, echoes Psalm 1. Jesus began that sermon saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And when Jesus came to the end of his sermon, we see a very similar imagery. Jesus said it then, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, and he says it today, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Have you entered that through that narrow gate? Maybe you've walked up to the narrow gate every Sunday and have yet to enter in. Could it be true of you this morning? Have you taken that decisive step of faith? Have you ever taken that step of faith and turned away from sin? Turned away from self and the way of the world and come through the narrow gate which is Christ himself and entered into his kingdom where you will find mercy and grace? To enter the narrow gate you must exit the broad path. Exit the path that is leading to your eventual and eternal ruin. I plead with you, if this is you, exit it now. Repent of your sins and commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus entered this world born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to the law of God. He went to the cross and was crucified for sinners. Jesus, who knew no sin, God made sin for us. And there upon the cross, through his death on behalf of guilty sinners, Jesus satisfied the righteous anger of God. In Romans 8, we have a sure and eternal promise for all who believe in him. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And with the shedding of his blood and the giving of his life, Jesus reconciled God and sinful man through the blood of his cross. Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, has redeemed his people from slavery to sin. Now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty and on high, and the Bible says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no salvation and no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you're without Christ today, you're cursed. If you are in Christ, you're blessed. If you're without Christ today, enter through that narrow gate. Run to Christ. He loves to receive sinners. 
He is the great physician who has come not for those who are well. No, he has come for those who are sick, those who are sinners, those who are guilty. Though, though your sins be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. If you have never called upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Run to Christ, exit the broad path, enter the narrow path, and you will receive a blessed life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your word in this psalm. And we thank you how you make it clear to us. I pray, Lord, that we would respond to your word in our hearts. Lord, if anyone here does not know you, I pray, God, you'd open their eyes to the truth that is only found in you, that they may be blessed as well. May we be ignited in our hearts to serve you, to love you, to love you more, and to meditate and delight in your word. We thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. And we pray that you have all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.